The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. President Xi Jinping marks the centenary of the country's Communist Party by delivering a message to international leaders about Beijing's position on the world stage. We will not accept sanctimonious preaching from those who feel they have the right to lecture us. Meanwhile, south of the border, Hong Kong marks the 24th anniversary of its handover to Chinese rule with no protests allowed. In corporate news, Didi soars as much as 30% on its New York debut before wiping out almost all those gains, but does manage to buck the ride-hailer trend to close finally in the green. CureVac sells off an extended trade after its final stage COVID vaccine trial proves only 48% effective. The CFO Pierre Cremola joins us at 8.15 CET. Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that he's not a big fan of more banking regulation, but admits that green stress tests are a reality for the banking industry. It's almost unavoidable. So as long as it's done in a relatively uh, clear way, simple way and uh, equal way, um, then I think it's not, not a, a bad idea. So warm welcome everybody to the program. Let's kick off with these uh, centenary celebrations. The Chinese President Xi Jinping is warning the country will stand up to what he described as sanctimonious preaching as he delivered a speech on the 100th anniversary of the ruling Communist Party. She also laid out his vision for Beijing's role in Hong Kong and Macau and vowed to reunify Taiwan with the mainland. She added the Chinese people will stand with the party. The party has always represented the fundamental interest of the Chinese people. It stands with them through thick and thin, and shares a common fate with them. The party has no special interests of its own. It has never represented any individual interest group or power group of privileged people. Any attempt to divide the party from the Chinese people or set the people against the party is bound to fail. Uh, well, let's get out to Sam. Sam, um, what's different in this? Uh, we've heard the same narrative coming out of the Chinese Communist Party in recent years as the relationship seems to have become frostier with some Western nations. Who was Xi Jinping talking to here? Is this for domestic consumption or is this really a message directed at President Biden? I think, Jeff, it's clearly both, but also other countries as well, because, of course, as he was speaking to his domestic audience physically, uh, he had some pretty tough talk uh, for anyone that uh, tries to bully China. Uh, as far as that uh, sound we just heard from President Xi Jinping, I think the messaging is pretty clear. Uh, he really talked up the strength of the party and really tried to reaffirm confidence in it and that uh, it will 
remain dominant. I think that was a very uh, strong message there. He also talked about this uh, national rejuvenation, uh, how uh, the Communist Party has managed to make China a very prosperous society uh, and uh, how it's now got the confidence to really uh, march into the next century, largely thanks to its opening up uh, policies, uh, etc. But as you say, this was also about an international audience. And actually, she said anyone who tries to bully China uh, will have their heads bashed bloody against the Great Wall of Steel. But he also had a pretty tough tone uh, when it came to Taiwan as well. Take a listen to what he had to say. Regarding the Taiwanese question and realizing Chinese complete reunification is a historic mission and an unshakable commitment of the Chinese Communist Party. No one should underestimate the resolve, the will and the ability of Chinese people to define their national sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, that is clearly a message for Taiwan, but also for the U.S., because, of course, China does recognize Taiwan as a renegade Chinese province and not a country. It has never renounced the use of force to bring it back uh, under its control. And uh, it has uh, really been increasingly hostile towards the island, particularly since uh, President Tsai Ing-wen swept to power back in uh, 2016. They suspect she wants to push for formal independence, despite the fact that she says uh, she wants to maintain the status quo. But of course, since then, we have seen this stepped up uh, military activity around the island, which has unnerved the region as far away as the United States. We've seen China plucking the very few diplomatic allies that Taiwan has in the last few years. And of course, those events uh, in Hong Kong back in 2019 has made Beijing increasingly nervous about the situation uh, in Taiwan, because of course, uh, this one country, two systems formula isn't as clear cut for Taiwan. as it is perhaps uh, for Hong Kong uh, and Macau. And so uh, President Xi Jinping uh, was certainly uh, feeling as if probably he was in a position to have to say something about Taiwan, given the uh, mounting international uh, pressure that we've seen and the attention we've seen thrown on this, because, of course, uh, China has repeatedly said that it doesn't want other countries to interfere in its internal affairs. And quite clearly, as uh, President Xi Jinping said today, Karen, China doesn't like to be bullied. Hi, my IFB's just dropped out. Uh, let's, um, let me pick up there and uh, let's move on to the Hong Kong aspect here. I think we've got a problem here with uh, Karen's audio. Hong Kong marks the 24th anniversary of the former British colony returning to Chinese rule. Ceremonies in the territory have been overshadowed by continued controversy over its national security law. Let's get out to Emily, who can give us the Hong Kong perspective now. Emily, good morning. Hi, good morning, Jeff. Good to see you. And we're here, of course, uh, just overlooking the Hong Kong Convention Center. You may remember back in 1997, that was where the handover took place. But also this morning, and as like every year on July the 1st, we get the flag-raising ceremony, and that is followed by an official reception. We got a chance to hear from the acting chief executive, John Lee, and he was speaking to the crowd, saying that the chief executive, Carrie Lam, is currently in Beijing, in the capital, for the centenary celebrations. And this does mark uh, the first 
first time ever since the handover took place uh, in the 24 years that she is not in town or the chief executive is not in town uh, for handover commemoration. So he is honored to be present as the acting chief executive. He made reference to the national security law, uh, the amendments of the Annex 1 and 2 and the basic law to have that happen, as well as uh, the recent electoral reforms, so those changes uh, that took place in recent weeks. On the NSL, he says that uh, it allows for the freedom of assembly, freedom of press, and freedom of protest. This is John Lee at the reception in his speech this morning. Over the past year, the national security law has prevented, curbed, and punished acts and activities that endanger national security. Hong Kong has also started a full range of national security education. I must emphasize that Article 4 of the national security law fully maintains national security as well as respects human rights. Therefore, while maintaining national security, citizens are still entitled to freedom of speech, press, assembly and protest. And as he was talking about the freedom to assemble and to protest, there will be no July 1 annual protest this year uh, as the CHRF uh, did not apply for this mass gathering. Uh, although there were some other opposition groups that did, those applications were denied. Now this comes uh, just shortly, about an hour ago, we had the police announce uh, that they were invoking the public order ordinance at noon Hong Kong time. So that was one hour ago. Uh, they have now locked down Victoria Park. That is the usual starting point for the July first protests and many of the protests that we have seen run through this city. Uh, this is uh, to prevent any unauthorized protests. Uh, so that as it stands, six football pitches, the basketball courts, the central lawn, as well as connecting pathways are now all off limits to the public. Uh, this is the usual gathering point for the protests. The annual protest on July the 1st normally starts off at 3 o'clock, kicking off from Victoria Park, uh, going through Wan Chai, through Admiralty, and then ending up in the central government offices uh, where they would hand over their petition letter, uh, etc., etc. Now, this is similar to what we saw on June the 4th. That is the uh, Tiananmen incident, the memorial. Uh, it was also locked down on that day. So this year was the first time uh, since uh, 1989 that we didn't have uh, the annual commemoration. They locked down the uh, the vigil, so there was no gathering there. Uh, but having said all of this, uh, back to today, uh, three opposition groups, including the uh, Social League of Democrats, so that is uh, founded by uh, Leung Kwok Hong, also known as Long Hair, uh, because there's going to be no mass gathering, they're going to be setting up some booths around various areas throughout the city, including Causeway Bay. So we're, we are seeing heightened police presence throughout the city today. Uh, reports that at least 10,000 police have been deployed to ensure that they have sufficient manpower ready to respond to any incident in the city. Uh, they're going to be preemptively stopping any disturbances from happening. And this is the same deployment size that we saw back in 2017 when President Xi Jinping came to Hong Kong uh, to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover. Uh, so water cannons as well as armored vehicles are also on standby and the police clearly taking a zero tolerance approach. Uh, they're going to be of course uh, taking enforcement action if and when necessary. Now uh, we're also marking the first year of the NSL, the National Security Law and in this time you may be curious as to uh, how many people were arrested. More than 100 
hundred and more than sixty people charged for offenses under the NSL, including subversion, secession, colluding with foreign forces, and terrorism. And in recent weeks, you have seen uh, the closure of the Apple Daily newspaper, Next Digital being impacted. Uh, lots of arrests uh, pertaining to that company. Uh, so uh, we're keeping track of what's happening here on this anniversary celebration for the handover uh, for the NSL, as well as the centenary celebrations up in China. Uh, and as I mentioned, there was a brief uh, mentioned by President Xi Jinping in his hour-long speech referring to Hong Kong and Macau, Chief Executive Carrie Lam and uh, the uh, Chief Executive of Macau, Ho Yat Seng. Uh, they were present over there uh, for the uh, commemorations up in the capital. Reporting live in Hong Kong, back to you guys. Emily, terrific. Thank you so much for the report. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein talks to CNBC exclusively about why banks can no longer avoid making ESG a key pillar of their strategy. That coming up in just a few moments. Uh, it looks as good, that interview, yeah. And more on the celebrations and geopolitical controversies taking centre stage in Greater China. Check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein has told CNBC it's inevitable that central banks will eventually start regulating lenders' exposure to carbon-emitting companies and industries. The Swiss banking boss added he would welcome such oversight if it were implemented properly. Well, I spoke exclusively to Mr. Gottstein as part of CNBC's sustainable future coverage and asked him whether he believes there's scope for profit-making in sustainable investing, or if the move towards ESG comes with a price. The pandemic has uh, substantially accelerated the trend towards ESG and sustainability, and the demand that we see both from our private clients, but also institutional clients for ESG-compatible products is ever-increasing, uh, and it's clearly seen as also an opportunity to improve returns. So there's no contradiction of sustainable investments and uh, sustainable returns. Quite the opposite, actually. In many cases, sustainable investments are actually higher returning than non-sustainable investments. So uh, this, this trend will continue. At the same time, in terms of financing, corporates, be they more traditional oil and gas uh, or uh, manufacturing companies, they are all looking at transitioning, uh, investing in renewables. And this trend is continuing as strong as we saw it last year, if not stronger. Uh, and from that perspective, I think this, uh, this will continue. Let me um, pick up on that because you've mentioned some of those heavy emitters and the extractive industries. Do you feel that they should be paying a higher cost of capital? And do you see Credit Suisse's role 
as being uh, that of enforcing perhaps that penalty to encourage a shift in behavior? Well, I think it, to some extent it's already happening. I think uh, um, companies that are behind the curve in terms of sustainability, they are already uh, forced to pay higher uh, cost of capital, be it uh, for cost of debt, be it cost of equity. So I'm, I'm not a big fan of regulation and forcing uh, externally um, uh, or unnaturally or through regulatory measures higher cost of capital because it's happening. The demand from investors for bonds or for equities for companies are behind the curve in terms of sustainability is already higher and will continue. Uh, the spreads will continue to increase if you do not have a clear uh, sustainable um, agenda. Do you believe that a central bank initiative to climate stress test you and other banks is a good idea? You already face quite high regulatory hurdles when it comes to capital adequacy. Do you need a climate change audit by the central banks to make sure that you comply? Look, uh, these discussions are ongoing, and in one, <clears throat> in one way, I'm, I'm not a big fan of more regulation. But on the other hand, I think it's almost unavoidable. So as long as it's done in a relatively uh, clear way, simple way, and uh, equal way, um, then I think it's not, not a, a bad idea because clearly the banks are agent for change and they have a very important role to play uh, in this whole climate change initiative to, uh, in terms of protection, in terms of um, uh, disruption, uh, but also transition. So uh, through our financing role, be it as principal lenders, be it as uh, underwriters of bonds and equities, we have a very important role. So uh, uh, some form of uh, simplified measure uh, would, would be okay, but we should avoid any uh, overly complex regulation. Uh, Mr. Gostein also told me he's not convinced a carbon tax regime is the appropriate policy to push governments and industry to decarbonize. The market forces are so strong now that it's, I'm not sure it's necessary uh, because the demand by investors is so much geared now towards sustainable um, products that there's no need for a carbon tax. Yeah, so an interesting conversation uh, with Thomas Gottstein. And again, I think the message coming through that this is uh, the banks reacting to what they see as client-led demand, largely. And increasingly, there are a number of different avenues that they're moving down. Uh, green bonds, the increasing involvement in green bonds and working with governments and companies to figure out how they will work, what kind of uh, yield you'll get as a borrower, and so on and so forth. The, the other interesting things I think they're doing around, are around the sustainable development goals. Again, you know, increasingly they say clients and institutions are coming to them and saying, can you create portfolios and products with reference to the sustainability goals so that we can more closely align our business activities and investments 
with that agenda. Mm. So much to unpack there as well. It's a great interview, by the way. Um, it was worth you hanging around all those extra hours after Scorebox for, I can assure you. Thank you. I think you started about only three hours late. Uh, um, but I think what's interesting is we, if we'd have had this conversation maybe five years ago, but certainly if we'd have had this conversation 10 years ago, it would all have been about, well, how do you subsidise renewables? How do you subsidise um, sustainability? And I thought uh, Gottstein's first answer to you, which did I mention it was a really good interview, um, was, was really very interesting because uh, he said, well, actually, they're not necessarily less profitable. In fact, in any case, many cases, they're more profitable now, sustainable investments. And that is renewables having come a long way. But it's also, about hydrocarbons coming a long way in the opposite direction, i.e. the days of big double-digit um, performance returns from your capital, from your equity, from your investment in hydrocarbons. Well, they are diminishing by the day as well. It's a lot harder to extract product uh, at double-digit returns now, as we've heard from the likes of Bernard Looney and uh, Ben Van Burden and others. Uh, and so, and that's happened at the same time that the hydrocarbons, uh, non-hydrocarbons, the renewables, have got way more profitable. I remember having a um, Herr Loscher, who was the former boss of Siemens. I was down at the glamorous location of Margate a few years ago when they were installing an offshore wind farm, an absolutely huge wind farm. And even though this was revolutionary at the time, he admitted to me that we need to get bigger blades, better mechanisms, better uh, productivity from these wind farms. Otherwise, the industry's toast. Well, the industry's done that. The industry has got better product now. So it is a lot more competitive. We're not there yet, hence your point about the carbon tax as well. Mm. So I think both on the technological front, it's improved. The rivals have found it harder in terms of hydrocarbon world uh, to make as much money as well. But here's the, my problem with the renewable situation at the moment. And it's something that we've all, and Karen as well, have studied a lot. Uh, and that is the fact that you've got a big pool of capital over here. And you've got a load of people who want that capital over here. But how is that money going to get from A to B profitably? Because we are at a very embryonic stage technologically in many of these developments. And, and battery is one that we've talked about an awful lot as well. But there are other technologies out there which are just so young. Fusion, for instance, all kinds of things which require and devour large amounts of capital. They're not all going to make it. So as you've been pointing out with renewable ETFs as well this year, it is very, very tough to pick the right investments, even though there is more capital available now than there's ever been. Karen, good morning. And good morning. Good points to pick up on. I was also interested in this comment uh, around the performance of sustainable investments because it's the conversation we've had for many years, even in the early days when it was sort of a niche area to be investing in. But uh, we've all seen the weight of money moving towards the renewable space. So I'm not surprised that it is also more profitable now than other areas of the market. We know how many fund managers are playing the thematics of which are renewables and climate change is certainly one of them. Uh, the other point, uh, I think, around regulation, I mean, you've got all sorts of regulation coming towards banks from local central banks, from local regulators. And if you think about from the Swiss perspective, through FINMA, they have been calling on banks and insurance companies now to report transparency on climate-related financial risks. And when you think about what that means, we're in the early days of flagging up what those risks are. So I think the banks have started the journey. But in terms of the execution, they're not quite there yet. A lot of surveys, there was a report a couple of months back in the first quarter from one of the big consultancy firms by EY. And effectively, they surveyed a whole bunch of financial services. And you had about half of them still struggling to meet net zero targets. They didn't really know how to get to that point. They knew it was a commitment that they, they needed to make. But actually getting to the point of execution is where some of the, the problems have been occurring. And that's also a point where some of the critics have been making their points that you're just not getting uh, the implementation through in some of the banks just yet, despite that pledge to try and reduce those emissions. Let's park the 
conversation there and move on to what we're seeing from the data later this week. The oil important non-farm payrolls report. The U.S. labor market is expected to have added 700,000 jobs in the month of June. That's according to a Reuters estimate. After non-farm payrolls rose less than expected in the previous month, the country's unemployment rate is seen falling to 5.7 percent, while wage gains are predicted to increase to 3.7 percent. So, Steve, nothing like a big data point for the markets to seize upon for the second half. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? I, again, we've talked about this a lot and we will obsess about non-farm payroll, no doubt about it. But some of the data already this week has been very, very interesting. There's been some disappointing data. Then there's been some figures like the conference board figures, which were absolutely staggering in some of the subsectors and expectations on employment. I may have mentioned that to you yesterday about the plentiful jobs available, according to the respondents, best this century, best this millennium. I think we can say that, yeah. Uh, yeah, 20, uh, 21 year high on those figures as well. But the figures yesterday, ADP employment as well. This is the latest bit of data as well. 692,000 jobs created uh, in June as well on the private payrolls. Now, it's not a great marker, I've got to say, for uh, non-farm payroll. It, it's very, very uh, volatile compared with the payroll. So if you're, if you're, if you're putting all your chips on uh, a very strong figure on the back of that. Just be a bit careful. Sometimes it's a marker which misses the mark, so to speak. So this is what the US markets did yesterday. Um, 200 more points uh, to cap, which has been a very solid uh, quarter and half of the year for the US indices. NASDAQ giving back a little bit, but my goodness me, it had a very, very strong quarter as well. Let's have a look at the Asian markets, X Hong Kong as well. Um, we have the Kospi down in South Korea in Seoul, down five tenths of 1%. ASX 200 down by a similar margin, and the Nikkei down four-tenths of 1%. The opening calls for the European indices, um, a solid but unspectacular start to trading called on the FTSE. Zetradax called up 50 points. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.